Section Zero of the Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Forward and Mark Twain A Biographical Summary. Forward. Nowhere is the human being more truly revealed than in his letters. Not in literary letters, prepared with care and the thought of possible publication, but in those letters wrought out of the press of circumstances, and with no idea of print in mind. A collection of such documents, written by one whose life has become of interest to mankind at large, has a value quite aside from literature in that it reflects in some degree at least the soul of the writer. The letters of Mark Twain are peculiarly of the revealing sort. He was a man of few restraints and of no affectations. In his correspondence, as in his talk, he spoke what was in his mind, untrammeled by literary conventions. Necessarily, such a collection does not constitute a detailed life story, but is supplementary to it. An extended biography of Mark Twain has already been published. His letters are here gathered for those who wish to pursue the subject somewhat more exhaustively from the strictly personal side. Selections from this correspondence were used in the biography mentioned. Most of these are here reprinted in the belief that an owner of the letters will wish the collection to be reasonably complete. Mark Twain, A Biographical Summary Samuel Langhorne Clemens, for nearly half a century known and celebrated as Mark Twain, was born in Florida, Missouri, on November 30, 1835. He was one of the foremost American philosophers of his day. He was the world's most famous humorist of any day. During the later years of his life, he ranked not only as America's chief man of letters, but likewise as her best-known and best-loved citizen. The beginnings of that life were sufficiently unpromising. The family was a good one, of old Virginia and Kentucky stock, but its circumstances were reduced, its environment meager and disheartening. The father, John Marshall Clemens, a lawyer by profession, a merchant by vocation, had brought his household to Florida from Jamestown, Tennessee, somewhat after the manner of Judge Hawkins, as pictured in The Gilded Age. Florida was a small town then, a mere village of twenty-one houses located on Salt River. But Judge Clemens, as he was usually called, optimistic and speculative in his temperament, believed in its future. Salt River would be made navigable. Florida would become a metropolis. He established a small business there, and located his family in the humble frame cottage where, five months later, was born a baby boy to whom they gave the name of Samuel, a family name, and added Langhorn after an old Virginia friend of his father. The child was puny and did not make a very sturdy fight for life. Still, he weathered along, season after season, and survived two stronger children, Margaret and Benjamin. By 1839, Judge Clemens had lost faith in Florida. He removed his family to Hannibal, 
and in this mississippi river town the little lad whom the world was to know as mark twain spent his early life in tom sawyer we have a picture of the hannibal of those days and the atmosphere of his boyhood there his schooling was brief and of a desultory kind it ended one day in eighteen forty seven when his father died and it became necessary that each one should help somewhat in the domestic crisis his brother orion ten years his senior was already a printer by trade pamela his sister also considerably older had acquired music and now took a few pupils the little boy sam at twelve was apprenticed to a printer named ament his wages consisted of his board and clothes more board than clothes as he once remarked to the writer he remained with ament until his brother orion bought out a small paper in hannibal in eighteen fifty the paper in time was moved into a part of the clemens home and the two brothers ran it the younger setting most of the type a still younger brother henry entered the office as an apprentice the hannibal journal was no great paper from the beginning and it did not improve with time still it managed to survive country papers nearly always managed to survive year after year bringing in some sort of return it was on this paper that young sam clemens began his writings burlesque as a rule of local characters and conditions usually published in his brother's absence generally resulting in trouble on his return yet they made the paper sell and if orion had but realized his brother's talent he might have turned it into capital even then in eighteen fifty three he was not yet eighteen sam clemens grew tired of his limitations and pined for the wider horizon of the world he gave out to his family that he was going to st louis but he kept on to new york where a world's fair was then going on in new york he found employment at his trade and during the hot months of eighteen fifty three worked in a printing office in cliff street by and by he went to philadelphia where he worked a brief time made a trip to Washington, and presently set out for the West again, after an absence of more than a year. Orion, meanwhile, had established himself at Muscatine, Iowa, but soon after removed to Keokuk, where the brothers were once more together, still following their trade. Young Sam Clemens remained in Keokuk until the winter of 1856-57, when he caught a touch of the South American fever then prevalent, and decided to go to Brazil. He left Keokuk for Cincinnati, worked that winter in a printing office there, and in April took the little steamer Paul Jones for New Orleans, where he expected to find a South American vessel. In Life on the Mississippi we have his story of how he met Horace Bixby and decided to become a pilot instead of a South American adventurer, jauntily setting himself the stupendous task of learning the twelve hundred miles of the Mississippi River between st louis and new orleans of knowing it as exactly and as unfailingly even in the dark as one knows the way to his own features it seems incredible to those who knew mark twain in his later years dreamy unpractical and indifferent to details that he could have acquired so vast a store of minute facts as were required by that task yet within eighteen months he had become not only a pilot 
but one of the best and most careful pilots on the river entrusted with some of the largest and most valuable steamers he continued in that profession for two and a half years longer and during that time met with no disaster that cost his owners a single dollar for damage then the war broke out south carolina seceded in december eighteen sixty and other states followed clemens was in new orleans in january eighteen sixty one when louisiana seceded and his boat was put into the confederate service and sent up the red river his occupation gone he took steamer for the north the last one before the blockade closed a blank cartridge was fired at them from jefferson barracks when they reached st louis but they did not understand the signal and kept on presently a shell carried away part of the pilot-house and considerably disturbed its inmates they realized then that war had really begun in those days clemens's sympathies were with the south he hurried up to hannibal and enlisted with a company of young fellows who were recruiting with the avowed purpose of throwing off the yoke of the invader they were ready for the field presently and set out in good order a sort of nondescript cavalry detachment mounted on animals more picturesque than beautiful still it was a resolute band and might have done very well only it rained a good deal which made soldiering disagreeable and hard lieutenant clemens resigned at the end of two weeks and decided to go to nevada with orion who was a union abolitionist and had received an appointment from lincoln as secretary of the new territory in roughing it mark twain gives us the story of the overland journey made by the two brothers and a picture of experiences at the other end true in aspect even if here and there elaborated in detail he was orion's private secretary but there was no private secretary work to do and no salary attached to the position the incumbent presently went to mining adding that to his other trades he became a professional miner but not a rich one he was at aurora california in the esmeralda district skimping along with not much to eat and less to wear when he was summoned by joe goodman owner and editor of the virginia city enterprise to come up and take the local editorship of that paper he had been contributing sketches to it now and then under the pen name of josh and goodman a man of fine literary instincts recognized a talent full of possibilities this was in the late summer of eighteen sixty two clemens walked one hundred and thirty miles over very bad roads to take the job and arrived way-worn and travel-stained he began on a salary of twenty-five dollars a week picking up news items here and there and contributing occasional sketches burlesques hoaxes and the like when the legislature convened at carson city he was sent down to report it and then for the first time began signing his articles mark twain a river term used in making soundings recalled from his piloting days the name presently became known up and down the pacific coast his articles were copied and commented upon he was recognized as one of the foremost among a little coterie of overland writers two of whom mark twain and bret hart were soon to acquire a world-wide fame he left carson city one day after becoming involved in a duel the result of an editorial squib written in goodman's absence and went across the sierras to san francisco 
the duel turned out farcically enough but the nevada law which regarded even a challenge or its acceptance as a felony was an inducement to his departure furthermore he had already aspired to a wider field of literary effort he attached himself to the morning call and wrote occasionally for one or two literary papers the golden era and the californian prospering well enough during the better part of the year bret hart and the rest of the little pacific slope group were also on the staff of these papers and for a time at least the new school of american humor mustered in san francisco the connection with the call was not congenial in due course it came to a natural end and mark twain arranged to do a daily san francisco letter for his old paper the enterprise the enterprise letters stirred up trouble they criticized the police of san francisco so severely that the officials found means of making the writer's life there difficult and comfortless with jim gillis brother of a printer of whom he was fond and who had been the indirect cause of his troubles he went up into calaveras county to a cabin on jackass hill jim gillis a lovable picturesque character the truthful james of bret hart owned mining claims mark twain decided to spend his vacation in pocket mining and soon added that science to his store of knowledge it was a halcyon happy three months that he lingered there but did not make his fortune he only laid the cornerstone they tried their fortune at angel's camp a place well known to readers of bret hart but it rained pretty steadily and they put in most of their time huddled around the single stove of the dingy hotel of angels telling yarns among the stories was one told by a dreary narrator named ben coon it was about a frog that had been trained to jump but failed to win a wager because the owner of a rival frog had surreptitiously loaded him with shot the story had been circulated among the camps but mark twain had never heard it until then the tale and the tiresome fashion of its telling amused him he made notes to remember it their stay in angel's camp came presently to an end one day when the mining partners were following the specks of gold that led to a pocket somewhere up the hill a chill dreary rain set in jim as usual was washing and clemens was carrying water the color became better and better as they ascended and gillis possessed with the mining passion would have gone on regardless of the rain clemens however protested and declared that each pail of water was his last finally he said in his deliberate drawl jim i won't carry any more water this work is too disagreeable let's go to the house and wait till it clears up gillis had just taken out a pan of earth bring one more pail sam he pleaded i won't do it jim not a drop not if i knew there was a million dollars in that pan they left the pan standing there and went back to angel's camp the rain continued and they returned to jackass hill without visiting their claim again meantime the rain had washed away the top of the pan of earth left standing on the slope above angel's and exposed a handful of nuggets pure gold two strangers came along and observing it had sat down to wait until the thirty-day claim notice posted by jim gillis should expire they did not mind the rain not with that gold in sight and the minute the thirty days were up they followed the lead a few pans further and took out 
some say ten some say twenty thousand dollars it was a good pocket mark twain missed it by one pail of water still it is just as well perhaps when one remembers the jumping frog matters having quieted down in san francisco he returned and took up his work again artemus ward whom he had met in virginia city wrote him for something to use in his ward's new book clemens sent the frog story but he had been dilatory in preparing it and when it reached new york carleton the publisher had ward's book about ready for the press it did not seem worth while to carleton to include the frog story and handed it over to henry clapp editor of the saturday press a perishing sheet saying here clapp here's something you can use the story appeared in the saturday press of november eighteenth eighteen sixty five according to the accounts of that time it set all new york in a roar which annoyed rather than gratified its author he had thought very little of it indeed yet had been wondering why some of his more highly regarded work had not found fuller recognition but the jumping frog did not die papers printed it and reprinted it and it was translated into foreign tongues the name of mark twain became known as the author of that sketch and the two were permanently associated from the day of its publication such fame as it brought did not yield heavy financial return its author continued to win a more or less precarious livelihood doing miscellaneous work until march eighteen sixty six when he was employed by the sacramento union to contribute a series of letters from the sandwich islands they were notable letters widely read and freely copied and the sojourn there was a generally fortunate one it was during his stay in the islands that the survivors of the wrecked vessel the hornet came in after long privation at sea clemens was sick at the time but anson burlingame who was in honolulu on the way to china had him carried in a cot to the hospital where he could interview the surviving sailors and take down their story it proved a great beat for the union and added considerably to its author's prestige on his return to san francisco he contributed an article on the hornet disaster to harper's magazine and looked forward to its publication as a beginning of a real career but alas when it appeared the printer and the proofreader had somehow converted mark twain into mark swain and his dreams perished undecided as to his plans he was one day advised by a friend to deliver a lecture he was already known as an entertaining talker and his adviser judged his possibilities well in roughing it we find the story of that first lecture and its success he followed it with other lectures up and down the coast he had added one more profession to his intellectual stock in trade mark twain now provided with money decided to pay a visit to his people he set out for the east in december eighteen sixty six via panama arriving in new york in january a few days later he was with his mother then living with his sister in st louis a little later he lectured in keokuk and in hannibal his old home it was about this time that the first great mediterranean steamship excursion began to be exploited no such ocean picnic had ever been planned before and it created a good deal of interest east and west mark twain heard of it and wanted to go 
he wrote to friends on the alta california of san francisco and the publishers of that paper had sufficient faith to advance the money for his passage on the understanding that he was to contribute frequent letters at twenty dollars apiece it was a liberal offer as rates went in those days and a godsend in the fullest sense of the word to mark twain clemens now hurried to new york in order to be there in good season for the sailing date which was in june in new york he met frank fuller whom he had known as territorial governor of utah an energetic and enthusiastic admirer of the western humorist fuller immediately proposed that clemens give a lecture in order to establish his reputation on the atlantic coast clemens demurred but fuller insisted and engaged cooper union for the occasion not many tickets were sold fuller however always ready for an emergency sent out a flood of complimentaries to the school teachers of new york and adjacent territory and the house was crammed it turned out to be a notable event mark twain was at his best that night the audience laughed until as some of them declared when the lecture was over they were too weak to leave their seats his success as a lecturer was assured the quaker city was the steamer selected for the great oriental tour it sailed as advertised june eighth eighteen sixty seven and was absent five months during which mark twain contributed regularly to the alta california and wrote several letters for the new york tribune they were read and copied everywhere they preached a new gospel in travel literature a gospel of seeing with an overflowing honesty a gospel of sincerity in according praise to whatever he considered genuine and ridicule to the things believed to be shams it was a gospel that mark twain continued to preach during his whole career it became in fact his chief literary message to the world a world ready for that message he returned to find himself famous publishers were ready with plans for collecting the letters in book form the american publishing company of hartford proposed a volume elaborately illustrated to be sold by subscription he agreed with them as to terms and went to washington to prepare copy but he could not work quietly there and presently was back in san francisco putting his book together lecturing occasionally always to crowded houses he returned in august eighteen sixty eight with the manuscript of the innocents abroad and that winter while his book was being manufactured lectured throughout the east and middle west making his headquarters in hartford and in elmira new york he had an especial reason for going to elmira on the quaker city he had met a young man by the name of charles langdon and one day in the bay of smyrna had seen a miniature of the boy's sister olivia langdon then a girl of about twenty-two he fell in love with that picture and still more deeply in love with the original when he met her in new york on his return the langdon home was in elmira and it was for this reason that as time passed he frequently sojourned there when the proofs of the innocents abroad were sent him he took them along and he and sweet livy langdon read them together what he lacked in those days in literary delicacy she detected and together they pruned it away she became his editor that winter a position which she held until her death the book was published in july eighteen sixty nine and its success was immediate and abundant on his wedding day february two eighteen seventy clemens received a check from his publishers for more than four thousand dollars 
royalty accumulated during the three months preceding. The sales soon amounted to more than 50,000 copies, and had increased to very nearly 100,000 at the end of the first three years. It was a book of travel, its lowest price $3.50. Even with our increased reading population, no such sale is found for a book of that description today. And The Innocents Abroad holds its place, still outsells every other book in its particular field. This in 1917. D.W. Mark Twain now decided to settle down. He had bought an interest in the Express of Buffalo, New York, and took up his residence in that city in a house presented to the young couple by Mr. Langdon. It did not prove a fortunate beginning. Sickness, death, and trouble of many kinds put a blight on the happiness of their first married year, and gave them a distaste for the home in which they had made such a promising start. A baby boy, Langdon Clemens, came along in November, but he was never a strong child. By the end of the following year, the Clemenses had arranged for a residence in Hartford, temporary at first, later made permanent. It was in Hartford that Little Langdon died, in 1872. Clemens, meanwhile, had sold out his interest in the Express, severed his connection with the Galaxy, a magazine for which he was doing a department each month, and had written a second book for the American publishing company, Roughing It, published in 1872. In August of the same year he made a trip to London to get material for a book on England, but was too much sought after, too continuously feted, to do any work. He went alone, but in November returned with the purpose of taking Mrs. Clemens and the new baby Susie to England the following spring. They sailed in April, 1873, and spent a good portion of the year in England and Scotland. They returned to America in November and Clemens hurried back to London alone to deliver a notable series of lectures under the management of George Dolby, formerly managing agent for Charles Dickens. For two months Mark Twain lectured steadily to London audiences, the big Hanover Square rooms always filled. He returned to his family in January 1874. Meantime, a home was being built for them in Hartford, and in the autumn of 1874 they took up residence in it, a happy residence, continued through seventeen years, well-nigh perfect years. Their summers they spent in Elmira, on Quarry Farm, a beautiful hilltop, the home of Mrs. Clemens's sister. It was in Elmira that much of Mark Twain's literary work was done. He had a special study there, some distance from the house, where he loved to work out his fancies and put them into visible form. It was not so easy to work at Hartford. There was too much going on. The Clemens home was a sort of general headquarters for literary folk, near and far, and for distinguished foreign visitors of every sort. Howells and Aldrich used it as their halfway station between Boston and New York, and every foreign notable who visited America made a pilgrimage to Hartford to see Mark Twain. Some even went as far as Elmira, among them Rudyard Kipling, who recorded his visit in a chapter of his American Notes. Kipling declared he had come all the way from India to see Mark Twain. Hartford had its own literary group. Mrs. Harriet Beecher Stowe lived near the Clemens home, also Charles Dudley Warner. The Clemens and Warner families were constantly associated, and The Gilded Age, published in 1873, resulted from the friendship of Warner and Mark Twain. 
the character of colonel sellers in that book has become immortal and it is a character that only mark twain could create for though drawn from his mother's cousin james lampton it embodies and in no very exaggerated degree characteristics that were his own the tendency to make millions was always imminent temptation was always hard to resist money-making schemes are continually being placed before men of means and prominence and mark twain to the day of his death found such schemes fatally attractive it was because of the seller's characteristics in him that he invested in a typesetting machine which cost him nearly two hundred thousand dollars and helped to wreck his fortunes by and by it was because of this characteristic that he invested in numberless schemes of lesser importance but no less disastrous in the end his one successful commercial venture was his association with charles l webster in the publication of the grant memoirs of which enough copies were sold to pay a royalty of more than four hundred thousand dollars to grant's widow the largest royalty ever paid from any single publication it saved the grant family from poverty yet even this triumph was a misfortune to mark twain for it led to scores of less profitable book ventures and eventual disaster meanwhile he had written and published a number of books tom sawyer the prince and the pauper life on the mississippi huckleberry finn and a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court were among the volumes that had entertained the world and inspired it with admiration and love for their author in eighteen seventy eight seventy nine he had taken his family to europe where they spent their time in traveling over the continent it was during this period that he was joined by his intimate friend the rev joseph h twitchell of hartford and the two made a journey the story of which is told in a tramp abroad in eighteen ninety one the hartford house was again closed this time indefinitely and the family now five in number took up residence in berlin the typesetting machine and the unfortunate publishing venture were drawing heavily on the family finances at this period and the cost of the hartford establishment was too great to be maintained during the next three years he was distracted by the financial struggle which ended in april eighteen ninety four with the failure of charles l webster and company mark twain now found himself bankrupt and nearly one hundred thousand dollars in debt it had been a losing fight with this bitter ending always in view yet during this period of hard hopeless effort he had written a large portion of the book which of all his works will perhaps survive the longest his tender and beautiful story of joan of arc all his life joan had been his favorite character in the world's history and during those trying months and years of the early nineties in berlin in florence in paris he was conceiving and putting his picture of that gentle girl warrior into perfect literary form it was published in harper's magazine anonymously because as he said it would not have been received seriously had it appeared over his own name the authorship was presently recognized exquisitely reverently as the story was told it had in it the touch of quaint and gentle humor which could only have been given to it by mark twain it was only now and then that mark twain lectured during these years he had made a reading tour with george w cable during the winter of eighteen eighty four eighty five but he abominated the platform and often vowed he would never appear before an audience again 
Yet in 1895, when he was 60 years old, he decided to rebuild his fortunes by making a reading tour around the world. It was not required of him to pay his debts in full. The creditors were willing to accept 50% of the liabilities, and had agreed to a settlement on that basis. But this did not satisfy Mrs. Clemens, and it did not satisfy him. They decided to pay dollar for dollar. They sailed for America, and in July 1895 set out from Elmira on the long trail across land and sea. Mrs. Clemens and Clara Clemens joined this pilgrimage, Susie and Jean Clemens remaining at Elmira with their aunt. Looking out of the car windows, the travelers saw Susie waving them an adieu. It was a picture they would long remember. The reading tour was one of triumph. High prices and crowded houses prevailed everywhere. The author-reader visited Australia, New Zealand, India, Ceylon, South Africa, arriving in England at last with the money and material which would pay off the heavy burden of debt and make him once more free before the world. And in that hour of triumph came the heavy blow. Susie Clemens, never very strong, had been struck down. The first cable announced her illness. The mother and Clara sailed at once. Before they were halfway across the ocean, a second cable announced that Susie was dead. The father had to meet and endure the heartbreak alone. He could not reach America in time for the burial. He remained in England and was joined there by the sorrowing family. They passed that winter in London, where he worked at the story of his travels, following the equator, the proofs of which he read the next summer in Switzerland. The returns from it, and from his reading venture, wiped away Mark Twain's indebtedness, and made him free. He could go back to America, as he said, able to look any man in the face again. Yet he did not go immediately. He could live more economically abroad, and economy was still necessary. The family spent two winters in Vienna, and their apartments there constituted a veritable court where the world's notables gathered. Another winter in England followed, and then, in the latter part of 1900, they went home, that is, to America. Mrs. Clemens never could bring herself to return to Hartford, and never saw their home there again. Mark Twain's return to America was in the nature of a national event. Wherever he appeared, throngs turned out to bid him welcome. Mighty banquets were planned in his honor. In a house at 14 West 10th Street, and in a beautiful place at Riverdale, on the Hudson, most of the next three years were passed. Then Mrs. Clemens' health failed, and in the autumn of 1903 the family went to Florence for her benefit. There, on the 5th of June, 1904, she died. They brought her back and laid her beside Susie at Elmira. That winter, the family took up residence at 21 Fifth Avenue, New York, and remained there until the completion of Stormfield at Reading, Connecticut, in 1908. In his later life, Mark Twain was accorded high academic honors. Already, in 1888, he had received from Yale College the degree of Master of Arts, and the same college made him a Doctor of Literature in 1901. A year later, the University of his own state at Columbia, Missouri, conferred the same degree, and then, in 1907, came the crowning honor, when venerable Oxford tendered him the doctor's robe. "'I don't know why they should give me a degree like that,' he said quaintly. "'I never doctored any literature. I wouldn't know how.' 
he had thought never to cross the ocean again but he declared he would travel to mars and back if necessary to get that oxford degree he appreciated its full meaning recognition by the world's foremost institution of learning of the achievements of one who had no learning of the institutionary kind he sailed in june and his sojourn in england was marked by a continuous ovation his hotel was besieged by callers two secretaries were busy nearly twenty hours a day attending to visitors and mail when he appeared on the street his name went echoing in every direction and the multitudes gathered on the day when he rose in his scarlet robe and black mortarboard to receive his degree he must have made a splendid picture in that dress with his crown of silver hair the vast assembly went wild what a triumph indeed for the little missouri printer boy it was the climax of a great career mark twain's work was always of a kind to make people talk always important even when it was mere humor yet it was seldom that there was always wisdom under it and purpose and these things gave it dynamic force and enduring life some of his aphorisms so quaint in form as to invite laughter are yet fairly startling in their purport his paraphrase when in doubt tell the truth is of this sort frankness is a jewel only the young can afford it he once said to the writer apropos of a little girl's remark his daily speech was full of such things the secret of his great charm was his great humanity and the gentle quaintness and sincerity of his utterance his work did not cease when the pressing need of money came to an end he was full of ideas and likely to begin a new article or story at any time he wrote and published a number of notable sketches articles stories even books during these later years among them that marvelous short story the man that corrupted hadleyburg in that story as in most of his later work he proved to the world that he was much more than a humorist that he was in fact a great teacher moralist philosopher the greatest perhaps of his age his life at stormfield he had never seen the place until the day of his arrival june eighteen nineteen o eight was a peaceful and serene old age not that he was really old he never was that his step his manner his point of view were all and always young he was fond of children and frequently had them about him he delighted in games especially in billiards and in building the house at stormfield the billiard room was first considered he had a genuine passion for the sport without it his afternoon was not complete his mornings he was likely to pass in bed smoking he was always smoking and attending to his correspondence and reading history and the sciences interested him and his bed was strewn with biographies and stories of astronomical and geological research the vastness of distances and periods always impressed him he had no head for figures but he would labor for hours over scientific calculations trying to compass them and to grasp their gigantic import i remember once finding him highly elated over the fact that he had figured out for himself the length in hours and minutes of a light year he showed me the pages covered with figures and was more proud of them than if they had been the pages of an immortal story then we played billiards but even his favorite game could not make him altogether forget his splendid achievement 
it was on the day before christmas nineteen o nine that heavy bereavement once more came into the life of mark twain his daughter jean long subject to epileptic attacks was seized with a convulsion while in her bath and died before assistance reached her he was dazed by the suddenness of the blow his philosophy sustained him he was glad deeply glad for the beautiful girl that had been released i never greatly envied anybody but the dead he said when he had looked at her i always envy the dead the coveted estate of silence time's only absolute gift it was the one benefaction he had ever considered worth while yet the years were not unkindly to mark twain they brought him sorrow but they brought him likewise the capacity and opportunity for large enjoyment and at the last they laid upon him a kind of benediction naturally impatient he grew always more gentle more generous more tractable and considerate as the seasons passed his final days may be said to have been spent in the tranquil light of a summer afternoon his own end followed by a few months that of his daughter there were already indications that his heart was seriously affected and soon after jean's death he sought the warm climate of bermuda but his malady made rapid progress and in april he returned to stormfield he died there just a week later april twenty one nineteen ten any attempt to designate mark twain's place in the world's literary history would be presumptuous now yet i cannot help thinking that he will maintain his supremacy in the century that produced him i think so because of all the writers of that hundred years his work was the most human, his utterances went most surely to the mark. In the long analysis of the ages it is the truth that counts, and he never approximated, never compromised, but pronounced those absolute verities to which every human being of whatever rank must instantly respond. His understanding of subjective human nature, the vast unwritten life within, was simply amazing. Such knowledge he acquired at the fountainhead, that is from himself he recognized in himself an extreme example of the human being with all the attributes of power and of weakness and he made his exposition complete the world will long miss mark twain his example and his teaching will be neither ignored nor forgotten genius defies the laws of perspective and looms larger as it recedes the memory of mark twain remains to us a living and intimate presence that today, even more than in life, constitutes a stately moral bulwark reared against hypocrisy and superstition, a mighty national menace to shame. End of section zero. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.